Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, the finance editor. This week on Money Talks, we'll check in with our correspondent in Kenya, Daniel Knowles, about his special report on doing business in Africa. There are things that are entrenched, there are things that have happened in terms of the growth of the middle class that there are people who really have an interest now in stability and, and there are far fewer governments that will throw everything into, into civil war or into straightforward political oppression. Before that, however, we look at how single women are reshaping the global economy. Historically, women were forced to depend on their husbands. But increasingly, as they have more economic and educational mobility and they have more doors open to them, they can delay marriage because they can be economically independent themselves. Rebecca Traster is the author of a new book, All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. The fact that we now increasingly have unmarried women who are not regarded as aberrations, but as part of the new normal actually helps us to get used to the idea that women can be economic and professional peers of men because they have to be in workplaces. These women who are not attached to the institution on which they used to depend are becoming normal parts of the economy. And so businesses are beginning to look at at single women as a distinct type of consumer. They are being regarded by advertisers and by manufacturers as a new and really powerful market. Now here with me in the studio to discuss this big shift is our economics correspondent, Sumaya Keynes. Thanks for joining us, Sumaya. Thanks for having me. So can you explain a little bit why there's been such a big growth in the number of single women, uh, not just in the rich world, as Rebecca points out, but all around the world? Sure. So there's been this extraordinary change in how families are set up, right? So in 1967, around two thirds of adults in America were living with a spouse. And that is around half today. The important thing to say then is that marriage rates have been falling, but cohabitation rates have been rising, right? So people living together, but not married. And so whereas back in 1967, almost no one was living with their with their spouse, now it's between seven and eight percent of adults. So then kind of moving on to thinking about why this is happening, there are lots of reasons. And, and it's really difficult to disentangle what's causing what. So we think that social norms are really, really important. You know, uh, role models, the Beyonce types, all the single ladies. You mean it's socially acceptable now exactly. to be unmarried and maybe to live with a partner uh, at the same right. time. There isn't so much fear that you'll be a spinster if you're unmarried by the time you're, you know, 22. It's challenging to get hard evidence on the effects of these social norms on families. There is one study um, in Brazil, which is, was quite fun. They, they showed that as TV, including these soap operas, were rolled out throughout the country, um, which showed upper middle class women having smaller families, that there was this huge effect on family size in Brazil. Right. So, so there is some evidence that people 
change their life choices based on what they're seeing either on TV or, or around them. But so it's, it's not just about the changing cultural mores, right? There's also a, a greater earning power with women now and, and, and that presumably enables them to lead different lifestyles. Sure. So over the last you know 50 years or so, the gender wage gap has been falling. You know, if you're a woman looking at your two options, you could get married and settle down or you could go and earn in the workforce. Um, earning seems more attractive. Here, cause and effect is really difficult because you might think that because women are choosing not to get married, they can devote more of their attention to their careers. And fundamentally, it's just really, really difficult to disentangle those two. And now when women do get married, the nature of marriage is also changing as a result of all of this, isn't it? Yeah. So that's been one of the huge changes over the past 50 years. So marriage used to be about specialisation. It used to be that, you know, the man would go out and work and the woman would essentially, you know, do home production or look after the kids, clean um, and so on. But we've had this, these huge technological changes that mean that actually robots, washing machines, food processors, they're doing that work that women used to do. Um, And that means that marriage is much less about specialisation between those different kinds of work and much more about other things. So there are some economists who think that, that marriage is now much more about the fact that you can both invest in your children. And if marriage is about shared returns to investments in children, then you might think that the gains from marriage would be different for different kinds of women, right? So for rich women, actually, marriage has not declined that much. It's declined a bit, um, but not that much. For low-educated women, marriage rates have fallen much, much faster. One potential reason for that is that actually they don't benefit as much from that shared investment in children, um, perhaps because of the the lack of decent men on offer. So what you're saying is this, this image that we have in our heads of the increasing numbers of single women who, you know, get to live an independent lifestyle, you know, be carefree, relatively high earning, at least compared to their their forebears. That's not really what's happening lower down the income scale. Yeah, that's right. And, and Rebecca also has something to say about that. The picture is very different for working class women. And in part, that's because of the staggering gap in economic opportunity. You know, the income inequality in the United States is so profound that it's at the heart of so many of the nation's problems. And, of course, it also reverberates for unmarried women. So, in effect, what we're saying is that marriage used to be a sort of redistributive institution, and and it's not anymore, that instead of having high-earning men passing some of their wealth through the family to women who didn't earn anything, now we've got high-earners separated off and low-earners separated off. What's the effect of that? Sure. So mechanically, the effect of this change in family structure increases inequality. So before the family unit with these two people, they would share income and that would effectively, they, they were transferring income between two people and smoothing it out. And now we have this fragmentation, right? So we have many more single people and they're just not doing the same amount of redistribution between the units. And so, you know, there have been some studies that have looked at how much this is contributing to the rise in inequality over the last, you know, 40 or so years. And there was one study that found that it could explain up up to a fifth of the increase in inequality, just this change in family structure. So do you think the state has a role in addressing all of this? Clearly, if family units aren't providing people with support that they were getting before, then there is a greater role for the state to intervene. Some people worry that actually people are responding to an increase in support from the state. So maybe the state is causing some families to break up because women don't need the support of their husband anymore. The counter to that would be, well, you know, maybe that's a great thing because these women have more freedom, right? They're not tied into these unhappy marriages. 
politics plays a part in all of this too. I mean, again, it's it's hard to unravel cause and effect, but certainly the fact that there are more single women and they are increasingly felt as a distinct voting bloc presumably means that they they might be able to shape what services are available, what state support is available to help them with whatever economic straits they find themselves in. Absolutely. It's clear that this demographic is increasingly important in American politics. Uh, Just to give you an example of a stat, at the last election, Mitt Romney just about carried uh, married women uh, and their votes, whereas Obama won among single women by 36 points. And if we think that politicians are increasingly paying attention to this group, then that could be amazing for the kinds of progressive pro-women policies that we might start getting. So perhaps if this group is becoming a more important political force, then we're going to get more policies focused towards them. So perhaps we're going to get more family-friendly policies, better policies on maternity leave, maternity pay, uh, more focus on thinking about the fundamental drivers of the gender pay gap. Why do women go into some jobs and not others? Is that about childcare or is that about something else? So not just economically, uh, not just uh, demographically, but also politically, the rise of of single women seems to be changing the world around them. Sumeya, thank you very much. Thank you. And just a reminder to all our social media types in the audience, you can find us at EconBizFin or at EconEconomics on Twitter and on Facebook at The Economist. Now we'll speak to Daniel Knowles, our Africa correspondent down the line in Nairobi. Uh, He's just written a special report on doing business in Africa. Uh, Daniel, uh, optimism about Africa's economy tends to wax and wane, and and we're we're entering a a waning period, aren't we? Tell me a little bit about your special report. It begins in Abidjan in the Ivory Coast, which seems to sort of encapsulate both the promise and the pitfalls of doing business in Africa. So, yeah, Abidjan, which is the commercial capital of Ivory Coast, the second biggest West African city, you know, it's booming. It's really booming. There's money pouring in, new infrastructure, new roads, new power stations, uh, new port terminals, lots of new supermarkets and investments kind of targeting the African middle class. And, you know, Ivory Coast is a country that was at war just five years ago that really had kind of a lost three decades to corruption, to war, two big wars in the uh, end of the last millennium and uh, and then again in 2010. And now it's really booming back and it's kind of run by these ministers who are all former bankers. You know, there's all this optimism there, but then kind of, you know, next door is, is Ghana where the IMF are coming in to give them a loan, where the government is, is bankrupt down, you know, not very far away is Nigeria, which is in all sorts of trouble because of the falling price of oil. So, there's this kind of like, yeah, this enormous rush of, of optimism, but it's no longer everywhere now. It's unclear whether the future is, is going to be more like Abidjan or it's going to be more like what's happening in Lagos or in uh, Accra at the moment. Right. And the main reason for the pessimism in the places that don't seem as gung-ho as Abidjan is the uh, commodity cycle, the, the falling price of oil and, and other minerals as well, right? Exactly. The World Bank says that for the 36 out of 48 African countries that experienced the decline in their terms of trade. And there's sort of two ways it's happening. First is that these countries, sort of Nigeria, Ghana, Angola, which had an awful lot of oil driven growth, and in other places, gold and other metals, had driven kind of an extraordinary amount of growth. And, and in turn, that had been leveraged. You know, African governments in these countries had borrowed quite a lot of money. Ghana and Zambia are the kind of two most obvious examples of this, and spent it quite uh, recklessly. And so there's this thing where the oil economy is collapsing, tax revenues with it are collapsing, and in turn, these uh, people are beginning to worry an awful lot about, you know, whether these 
governments are going to be able to repay their debts or, you know, and so are not lending the money anymore. So you have this kind of double squeeze. As you say, we're at this tipping point and the decision is being made for some African governments, isn't it? I mean, as you say, they've run out of money. The IMF has to be called in to bail some of them out and maybe that will precipitate change. What's happening with that? Well, certainly, yeah, the IMF are, uh, you know, they've, they've given a credit line to Kenya. They've been full loans to Zambia and Ghana. It's quite likely that uh, Nigeria and Angola will end up going to the IMF. And the IMF is fiercely unpopular on this continent. You know, people remember, or at least people in government remember, you know, the 1990s, 1980s and structural adjustment policies. When the IMF sort of forced un- unpopular austerity down African government's throats. Exactly. And that's probably going to happen again, you know. Um, there's a political risk, too, because an awful lot of kind of very uh, resource-rich countries are quite clientelistic. People support the government because they get money from it rather than because they pay money into it. And some of those political situations are going to break down and, and yeah, they, they're, they're running out of money. Right. So, I mean, we're, we're faced with a possible, very gloomy scenario of a sort of breakdown of governance, of economic decline, you know, potential civil conflict. But Africa still has a lot going for it, right? I mean, it, it is, yeah. in spite of the picture you're painting, more stable than it used to be. So you have big problems with corruption. You have big problems with governments which don't particularly well serve their people, but they are not so totally unaccountable as before. And they're not so, you know, they, there are things that are entrenched, there are things that have happened in terms of the growth of the middle class, that there are people who really have an interest now in stability, and, and there are far fewer governments that will throw everything into, into civil war or into straightforward political oppression. I mean, that's very optimistic, but also there's a very strong sort of demographic element in Africa's favour, right? This is a moment when the greater democracy and, and the sort of greater stability, in spite of the, the poor moment in the commodity cycle, could actually uh, serve Africa well economically. You know, young people who are coming up in Africa now are, are far more educated, you know, in, in Kenya, in Nigeria, like school enrollment has soared. Um, you know, a lot of money has been spent in schools. You know, universities still have a lot to be desired, but like this is a population that is, is far better informed, that is more urban, that has access to mobile phones, to the internet, that can know what's going on in the world and are not so vulnerable, I think, to the kind of, um, you know, ethnic and, and violent politics of the past than their, their elders were at the same sort of age. So it could go either way, but I think kind of Africa's demographics is something to be hopeful about. So reasons both for hope and to worry. Daniel, thank you very much. That's it for this week on Money Talks. To read the special report on African business, grab the latest issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. Goodbye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.